Chapter One, Part One of Christian Non-Resistance. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter One of Christian Non-Resistance in All Its Important Bearings, Illustrated and Defended, by Aidan Ballou. Explanatory Definitions. Different Kinds of Non-Resistance. What is Christian Non-Resistance? It is that original, peculiar kind of non-resistance which was enjoined and exemplified by Jesus Christ, according to the scripture of the New Testament. Are there other kinds of non-resistance? Yes. 1. The philosophical non-resistance of various hue, which sets at not divine revelation, disregards the authority of Jesus Christ as a divine teacher, excludes all strictly religious considerations, and deduces its conclusions from the light of nature the supposed fitness of things, and the expediency of consequences. 2. Sentimental non-resistance, also of various hue, which is held to be the spontaneous dictate of man's higher sentiments in the advanced stages of their development, transcending all special divine revelations, positive instructions, ratiocination, and considerations of expediency. 3. Necessitous non-resistance, commonly expressed in the phrase, passive obedience and non-resistance, imperiously preached by the despots to their subjects, as their indispensable duty and highest virtue, also recommended by worldly prudence to the victims of oppression, when unable to offer successful resistance to their injurers. With this last-mentioned kind, Christian non-resistance has nothing in common. With philosophical and sentimental non-resistance, it holds much in common, being in fact the divine original of which they are human adulterations, and embracing all the good of both without the evils of either. This treatise is an illustration and defense of Christian non-resistance, properly so designated. The term non-resistance. The term non-resistance itself next demands attention. It requires very considerable qualifications. I use it as applicable only to the conduct of human beings towards human beings not towards the inferior animals, inanimate things, or satanic influences. If an opponent, willing to make me appear ridiculous, should say, You are a non-resistant, and therefore must be passive to all assailing beings, things, and influence, to Satan, man, beast, bird, serpent, insect, rocks, timbers, fires, floods, heat, cold, and storm, I should answer, Not so. My non-resistance relates solely to conduct between human beings, this is an important limitation of the term. But I go further, and disclaim using the term to express absolute passivity, even towards human beings. I claim the right to offer the utmost moral resistance, not sinful, of which God has made me capable, to every manifestation of evil among mankind. Nay, I hold it my duty to offer such moral resistance. In this sense, my very non-resistance becomes the highest kind of resistance to evil, this is another important qualification of the term. But I do not stop here. There is an uninjurious, benevolent, physical force. There are cases in which it would not only be allowable, but in the highest degree commendable, to restrain human beings by this kind of force. Thus, maniacs, the insane, the delirious sick, ill-natured children, the intellectually or morally non mentis, the intoxicated, and the violently passionate, are frequently disposed to perpetrate outrages and inflict injuries, either on themselves or others, 
which ought to be kindly and uninjuriously prevented by the muscular energy of their friends. And in cases where deadly violence is inflicted with deliberation and malice aforethought, one may nobly throw his body as a temporary barrier between the destroyer and his helpless victim, choosing to die in that position, rather than be a passive spectator. Thus another most important qualification is given to the term non-resistance. It is not non-resistance to animals and inanimate things, nor to Satan, but only to human beings. Nor is it moral non-resistance to human beings, but chiefly physical. Nor is it physical non-resistance to all human beings, under all circumstances, but only so far as to abstain totally from the infliction of personal injury, as a means of resistance. It is simply non-resistance of injury with injury, evil with evil. Will the opposer exclaim, This is no non-resistance at all, the term is mischosen? I answer, so said the old opposers of the temperance reformation, respecting the term total abstinence. They began by insisting that the term must be taken unqualifiedly, and pronounced total abstinence an absurdity. It was replied, we limit its application to the use of ardent spirits and intoxicating liquors. Then you exclude these substances from the arts and from external applications, do you? rejoined the opposers. No, replied the advocates of the cause, we mean total abstinence from the internal use, the drinking of those liquors. But are they not sometimes necessary for medical purposes? said the opposers. And then may they not be taken internally? Certainly, with proper precautions, was the reply. We mean by total abstinence precisely this, and no more, the entire disuse of all ardent spirits and intoxicating liquors, as a beverage. That, exclaimed the objectors, despairing of a reductio ad absurdum, is no total abstinence at all. The term is mischosen. Nevertheless, it was a most significant term. It had in it an almost talismanic power. It expressed better than any other just what was meant, and wrought a prodigious change in public opinion and practice. The term non-resistance is equally significant and talismanic. It signifies total abstinence from all resistance of injury with injury. It is thus far from non-resistance, no farther. The almost universal opinion and practice of mankind has been on the side of resistance of injury with injury. It has been held justifiable and necessary for individuals and nations to inflict any amount of injury which would effectually resist a supposed greater injury. The consequence has been universal suspicion, defiance, armament, violence, torture, and bloodshed. The earth has been rendered a vast slaughter-field, a theatre of reciprocal cruelty and vengeance, strewn with human skulls, reeking with human blood, resounding with human groans, and steeped with human tears. Men have become drunk with mutual revenge, and they who would inflict the greatest amount of injury, in pretended defense of life, honor, rights, property, institutions, and laws, have been idolized as the heroes and rightful sovereigns of the world. Non-resistance explodes this horrible delusion, announces the impossibility of overcoming evil with evil, and, making its appeal directly to all the injured of the human race, enjoins on them, in the name of God, never more to resist injury with injury, assuring them that by adhering to the law of love under all provocations, and scrupulously suffering wrong rather than inflicting it, they shall gloriously overcome with good and exterminate all their enemies by turning them into faithful friends. The term force, etc., Having thus qualified and defined the term non-resistance, it would seem proper to do the same with several others, frequently made use of in the discussion of our general subject. One of these terms is force. 
Non-resistants, like others, have been in the habit of using this and similar terms too loosely, thereby giving needless occasion for misunderstanding on the part of the uninformed, and misrepresentation on the part of interested opposers. The word force is thus defined by Walker. Strength, vigor, might, violence, virtue, efficacy, validness, power of law, armament, warlike preparation, destiny, necessity, fatal compulsion. Now, if we should use the word force as the contrary of non-resistance without any qualification, the idea would be conveyed that non-resistance was identical with absolute passivity, and that it necessarily excluded all kinds and degrees of force, under all circumstances whatsoever. The generic meaning of the term force is strength, vigor, might, whether physical or moral. Thus, we may speak of the force of love, the force of truth, the force of public opinion, the force of moral suasion, the force of non-resistance. Or we may speak of the force of gravitation, the force of cohesion, the force of repulsion, etc. Or in relation to the muscular force of human beings, we may speak of benevolent force, kind force, uninjurious force, meaning thereby various applications of muscular strength for the purpose of preventing human beings committing on themselves or others some injury, in which prevention no personal injury is inflicted, but real kindness and benefit done to all parties concerned. As non-resistance is not identical with absolute passivity, but allows, implies, and requires various kinds and degrees of moral and physical strength, according to circumstances, the term force must not be used as its converse, unless it be with some qualifications, or in such a connection as will give it some one of its conventional significations, so that it should mean violence, warlike force, positive vengeance, destructive force, in fine, injurious force. Injurious force of all kinds and degrees between human beings is incompatible with non-resistance. Such are the qualifications with which the term force will be used in this work. The term moral force will be understood from the preceding remarks as synonymous with moral power, the effective influence of moral strength, vigor, might. Physical force, as distinguished from moral force, is a term used to express the idea of material force, the action of one body on another, compelling the weaker to yield to the stronger by mere animal strength or mechanical power. As moral force may be either good or evil, injurious or uninjurious, according to its kind, its object, its spirit, or its manner of application, so may physical force be good or evil, injurious or uninjurious, according to the same considerations. When a licentious man corrupts the mind of an innocent youth by bad examples, bad counsel, bad maxims, and other evil influences, in which there is no physical force, he exerts a most injurious moral force. He demoralizes the principles and habits of one, whom he ought to encourage and confirm in virtue. When a good man converts a sinner from the error of his ways, by good examples, counsels, maxims, and other purifying influences, he exerts a most beneficent and salutary moral force. So when a man by physical force destroys or impairs the life, intellect, moral sentiment, or absolute welfare of a human being, he uses an injurious physical force. But in restraining a human from outrage, or holding a delirious sick person on the bed, or compelling an ill-natured child to desist from tearing out the hair of a weaker brother, or interposing his body and muscular strength to prevent rape, or any similar act wherein he does no one a real injury, while he renders to some or all the parties concerned a real benefit, he uses a rightful, uninjurious physical force. The term injury. I use this term in a somewhat peculiar sense, 
to signify any moral influence or physical force exerted by one human being upon another, the legitimate effect of which is to destroy or impair life, to destroy or impair the physical faculties, to destroy or impair the intellectual powers, to destroy, impair, or pervert the moral and religious sentiment, or to destroy or impair the absolute welfare, all things considered, of the person on whom such influence or force is exerted, whether that person be innocent or guilty, harmless or offensive, injurious or uninjurious, sane or insane, compos mentis or non compas, adult or infant. Some of the lexicographers define an injury to be hurt, harm, or mischief, unjustly done to a person, thereby implying that any hurt, harm, or mischief done to one who deserves nothing better, or can be considered as justly liable to it, is no injury at all. I reject entirely every such qualification of the term. I hold an injury to be an injury, whether deserved or undeserved, whether intended or unintended, whether well-meant or ill-meant, determining the fact in accordance with the foregoing definition. But, says the inquirer, what if it can be proved justifiable, by the law of God, to inflict personal injury in certain cases on the offensive and guilty? Then, of course, it will be proved that non-resistance is a false doctrine. What if it can be proved that the infliction of small injuries may prevent much greater evils? Then it will be proved that we may do evil, that good may come, which will forever keep the world just where it is. What if it can be shown that the person who inflicts an injury honestly intended it for a benefit? That will only prove him honestly mistaken, and so undeserving of blame. What if a man inflicts death, or any other injury, according to established human laws, but does it with malice, or revenge, or any malevolent intent? Then he does an anti-Christian act, without conscience as to its real nature. The act must be condemned, he must be credited for his motives, due allowance must be made for his misapprehension of duty, and light poured into his mind to superinduce a better conscience, that he may be brought to act the Christian part. But in no case must we lose sight of the injury, whether an injury has been done. And in determining this, we must not ask whether the recipient was guilty or innocent, whether the thing done were well or ill-intended, whether it were done in a right or a wrong spirit. If it be in fact an injury, it is contrary to the doctrine of Christian non-resistance, and no person knowing it to be such can repeat it under any pretext whatsoever, without violating the law of God. This is the sense and significance of the terms injury, injurer, injurious, etc., as used in these pages. The objector may here interpose critical queries, with a view to test the soundness of my definition. He may suppose that a man's leg, hand, or eye is so diseased as to require amputation in order to save his life. But such member is one of his physical faculties, which must not be destroyed or impaired, because that would be injury. I answer, the diseased member is already lost. The question is not whether the friendly surgeon shall destroy or impair it, but one whether he shall amputate it, in order to preserve the life and remaining faculties. No injury, but an absolute benefit, is proposed. The case is clear. But suppose the minister of the law is ordered to amputate a sound leg, hand, or eye as a punishment, or, for an example, to deter others from the commission of crime. This is absolute injury, done under good pretexts indeed, but on that account none the less an injury. Again, a child dangerously sick requires some medical application, very disagreeable, yet indispensable to his recovery, which can only be applied by physical force. Or an insane adult is in the same circumstances. Or a person infected with hydrophobia, and subject to terrible paroxysms of the disease, needs to be confined, 
and yet for want of judgment, even in his intervals, refuses to be. Or a man subject to violent impulses of propensity or passion, rendering him dangerous to all around him when excited, needs to be excluded from general society, or otherwise watched and restrained by keepers, in order to prevent serious mischief to others. And yet he resents and resists all entreaties to submit to such restriction, or a wicked man is exceedingly alarmed, disturbed, and offended by a truthful exposure of his iniquitous proceedings, or by the faithful remonstrances and rebukes of some good man. Now, in all such cases the will must be crossed, the personal freedom abridged, and the feelings pained. Must it not be an injury to coerce, restrain, expose, and reprove such persons, however necessary to their and the public good, and however kindly executed? Is it not generally more intolerable to be crossed in one's will and wounded in one's feelings than to be beaten, maimed, and otherwise maltreated? Answer. It is not man's imaginations, thoughts, and feelings that determine what is or is not injurious to him. Love itself may heap coals of fire on a man's head. Truth may torment his mind. The most benevolent restraint may be painful to his feelings. He may be made for a while quite unhappy by crossing his evil will. He may prefer to be smitten or mutilated, rather than be exposed in his secret iniquities, or endure the faithful reproof of the upright. Such persons often prefer an injury to a benefit. They are not, for the time being, in a state of mind to understand and choose what is best for them. Therefore their wills, feelings, and opinions are not the indices of their own good, much less that of others. Is it good for a capricious, obstinate child to be indulged in opposing a necessary medical application? Is it good for an insane or delirious sick adult to have his own will, even to the commission of murder and self-destruction? Is it good for a man to have unlimited freedom, when he will almost certainly make it a curse to himself and others, by gross involuntary outrage or uncontrollable passion? Is it good for a wicked man, under specious hypocritical disguises, to perpetrate the most atrocious mischief, unexposed and unreproved? These things are not good for mankind. On the contrary, it is good for them to be crossed, restrained, coerced, and reproved by all uninjurious moral and physical forces, which benevolence prompts and wisdom dictates. To cross their wills and pain their feelings by such means, under such circumstances, is not an injury, but a substantial good, to them and all who are connected with them. It may be said, these things cannot be done uninjuriously. It would be impracticable. Cannot unreasonable children be nursed, delirious adults controlled, dangerously distempered people prevented from doing themselves and others harm, outrageous non-compost persons restrained, hypocrites exposed, and sinners reproved without inflicting injury on them? Then can nothing good be done without doing evil. Imperfection is indeed incidental to all human judgment and conduct, and therefore it is probable that some mistakes and some accidental injuries might happen. But the reason and common sense of mankind once fairly pledged to the true principle of action, would seldom fail to discharge all these duties to general satisfaction. Still, it may be asked, what is to be done if uninjurious force should prove inadequate? May life be sacrificed, limbs broken, the flesh mangled, or any other injuries allowed in extreme cases? Never. The principle of non-injury must be held inviolable. It is worth worlds, and must be preserved at all hazards. What cannot be done uninjuriously must be left undone. But these extreme cases are mostly imaginary. The truth is that what cannot be done uninjuriously can scarcely ever be done at all, or if done, had better have been let alone. Experience in the case of the insane has already proved that incomparably more can be done by uninjurious forces 
scrupulously and judiciously employed, than by any admixtures of the injurious element. Presuming that my definition and use of the terms injure, injury, injurer, injurious, etc., cannot be misunderstood, I pass on. The Term Christian Non-Resistance Whence originated the term Christian non-resistance? Non-resistance comes from the injunction, Resist not evil, Matthew verse 39. The words resist not, being changed from the form of a verb to that of a substantive, give us non-resistance. This term is considered more strikingly significant than any other, of the principle involved, and the duty enjoined in our Saviour's precept. Hence its adoption and established use. It is denominated Christian non-resistance, to distinguish it as the genuine primitive doctrine, from mere philosophical, sentimental, and necessitous non-resistance. Literally, then, Christian non-resistance is the original non-resistance taught and exemplified by Jesus Christ, the bearings, limitations, and applications of which are to be learned from the scriptures of the New Testament. And what are those bearings, limitations, and applications? I have already given an imperfect view of them in the previous definitions but I will be more explicit. What I aim at is to carry the obligations of non-resistance just as far and no farther than Jesus Christ has. It is easy to go beyond or to fall short of his limits. Ultra-radicals go beyond him. Ultra-conservatives fall short of him. Even those of both these classes, who profess to abide implicitly by his teachings, construe and interpret his language so as to favor their respective errors. The ultra-radicals seize on strong, figurative, hyperbolic, or intensive forms of expression, and make him seem to mean much more than he could have intended. The ultra-conservatives ingeniously fritter away and nullify the very essence of his precepts, in such a manner as to make him seem to mean much less than he must have intended. There is, however, a general rule for such cases, which can scarcely fail to expose the errors of both classes, in respect to any given text. It is this. Consider the context, consider parallel texts, consider examples, consider the known spirit of Christianity. Any construction or interpretation of the recorded language of Christ, or of his apostles, in which all these concur, is sound. Any other is probably erroneous. End of chapter 1, part 1